It's ticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. Kristen Lopez and our new co-host Emily Edwards. Excited! We're going international. I'm ready. Yes. This is the start of our international month. Our first of our two international films that we're discussing this month is Marcello Mastroianni's. Well, I consider Marcello Mastroianni's. It's really Federico Fellini's Eight and a Half. You're not wrong. I've seen this, and I know I had seen La Dolce Vita, and the problem is I've kept confusing all of the things that I liked from what I thought was this movie. Turns out they were all La Dolce Vita things. I have very mixed opinions on this. This could be a very contentious episode, depending on everybody else's thoughts. We're definitely going to get into it, but this is a roller coaster of a movie. That's for sure. A fever dream. That's putting it lightly. <laughs> but before we talk about Marcello, Frederico, and Eight and a Half, We'd like to remind everyone that if you haven't checked out our Patreon at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz, you should. We do additional bonus pods, including our double features, looking at remakes, and based on a true podcast, looking at biopics and true crime. We also give out regular care packages of movies and gifts and let you guest on an episode. That's all at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. And don't forget to order Kristen's book, but have you read the book, 52 Literary Gems That Inspired Our Favorite Movies? You can order that wherever you get books. And our new Redbubble store has some fabulous art, some designed by yours truly, and some designed by our wonderful Terrence Hilt, featuring our favorite stars, including our popular Makoko mugs. You can find all of that at ticklishbiz.redbubble.com. Now back to Eight and a Half. We're going international, which I'm excited for. This year, I really got into foreign classic film and silence crossing more things off the list. But we're talking about Federico Fellini's Eight and a Half. This is the story of a director, Guido Anselmi, played by Marcello Mastriani, who is trying to work on a film. He's taken a bit of a rest cure at a spa due to exhaustion. We're not really clear. Along the way, he invites his mistress, Carla, played by Sandra Milo, as well as his wife, Louisa, played by Anouk Ami, a bunch of other women that cause him to look back at his life, his religion, his relationship with his parents. It is a cavalcade of thoughts. As I mentioned up top, I have seen this film and I remembered absolutely nothing about it because I think I saw it during that period of my film education where you're like 17, 16, you're like, I want to see all these movies and you have no life experience in order to actually relate to them. I saw this and I was like, oh, it's weird. This is the definition of a quote-unquote foreign film, where it's a lot of pontificating. I didn't really appreciate it. In the interim, though, I saw Nine, the musical version that is what they redid this as. The film version of Nine is not great. It's got some good songs, but it's not great. And it does condense a lot of the themes, if not omit them entirely. Not coming at this with all of the information. But I watched this alongside Day for Night, which is Francois Truffaut's look at filmmaking, which is also considered one of the best movies about making movies. 
I don't know, gang. If I hadn't seen Day for Night, I might have liked this a bit more. There's a lot of stuff that I appreciated about this. The Nino Rota score is fantastic. I prefer the Dolce Vita a bit more. But my biggest issue with this is similar to my critiques with Paul Thomas Anderson's Phantom Thread, which ironically has Daniel Day-Lewis, who was in Nine, the film version, which is that this is really the story of a guy trying to figure out the concept of waning virility, getting older, who's going to take care of him. It's just a lot of me continuously saying, Marcello's really cool. He plays the character really cool. But God, I hate him. <laughs> Am I on my island? I'm curious to hear your thoughts, because I think we're all coming at this from first-time experience, right? I went to a college that had a very strong musical theater background, huge musical theater program. So my first introduction to the storyline was nine. And when they did production of it every single year, and I love Arthur Coppett. He's one of my favorite playwrights. I love everything he has ever written. The guy who wrote the book for nine won a Tony Award for it. If you don't know Arthur Coppett's plays, please read them. They're amazing. That being said, I came at this from having done a literature podcast for the last five years. And I'm looking at it going, oh man, this man loves himself so much. And again, I'm watching all of these really sexy people do really interesting, fascinating things in a very sexy setting. And it made me really want to go to Italy. And the entire time I'm just like, wow, I don't know how I feel about this anymore. I do wonder how much one needs a background about Italian gender dynamics, because watching this we know as Americans, the stereotypes, right, about mm -hmm. Italians, the flirtation and the sexiness and all of that. But I would be really interested to know about the history of gender relations in the 1960s in Italy. Because to look at stuff now in a post-Me Too world, Berlusconi just died, who is a very controversial figure for Italy, and does play up a lot of those stereotypes that we see. So I would be very interested to have a bit more background on that. I know that Bellini based a lot of this on his own life. This was essentially his process of trying to make Eight and a Half, which was originally titled The Beautiful Confusion, which that tracks. He was trying to make a movie where he wanted to convey, quote, the past, present, and conditional, which we're going to get into the concept of conditional love in this movie because, oh my God, is it... A mess. He wanted to make a movie about all of the themes of Eight and a Half. Couldn't figure out a way in. Was driving himself crazy in order to achieve it. And eventually had this moment that was like this. This is the movie. Me trying to figure out how the hell to make this movie. And that's really interesting. It is the apotheosis of the blowhard director being like, you know what? I can just make a movie about myself and people will see it. Americans do it too. Spielberg. But I do love that Fellini considered this the greatest film of all time, of all movies ever made. His own His movie. own movie? Okay. <laughs> His own movie, yes. I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that because there is a lot of personal autobiography in this, clearly. And I don't know if it necessarily makes Fellini look good. That's part of the beauty of the film. I will admit... There's a lot about this film that I still don't understand after one watch. I think it'll take me several watches to fully understand this movie. I come at this as just a Marcello Mastroianni super fan. I've tried to watch everything I could get my hands on. I still haven't seen a lot of his really big works. Like, I actually still haven't seen La Dolce Vita. 
But I've seen just about everything that he's done with Sophia Loren and a lot of his work outside of Sophia Loren. This was a big one to cross off for me. One of the things that I love about Marcello is that he could just play anything. My favorite of his is probably Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. You see that so beautifully all encapsulated in one film there because it's three completely different stories. The only thing that they have in common is that there's some kind of complicated love situation going on. He plays someone who's destitute and a father of 12 in one vignette. And then in another vignette, he's with this high class Sophia Loren wearing Chanel. He can play anything. This one, I just had to cross it off. As far as the themes of the film, a lot of what it's trying to say, especially towards the end that I really love and appreciate is this is a director who's just so full of himself throughout the entire thing. He ends up making a movie that's just completely self-facing and he talks about the women in his life in not a great light. His wife calls him out on it, which I love. <laughs> At the end of the day, he learns that he ultimately needs the women in his life. And he learns that he needs everybody else involved in making this film. He wouldn't be there without them. It wouldn't be a film without them. A lot of the theme of the film is, yes, I've been this very arrogant person all my life, but now I'm starting to learn maybe I do need people. And I think that's part of the beauty of it. I love how you sum that up because it's something I hadn't really thought of. And see, this is why I love all three of us coming at this from different ways. You are totally right that he's the only person that could have played this character because I didn't like the character, but I liked him playing the character. And I think that that's a really important distinction because sometimes you can have a performer that is just so charismatic and charming that they can transcend the unlikable elements of how they are written. While Guido is written very unlikably, Marcello, at least you understand why all of these women are interested in him. And it's not because he is a director. It is because he is a genuinely charming person. You see the first meeting where him and Carla have reunited at the train station. He's telling her in the hotel room that she needs to dress herself up, quote unquote, more slutty. You're just like, I get it. It's a bad choice of words, but I get what he's going for and I don't really hate him. But then you can have a later sequence where he's sitting at a restaurant with his wife and Carla shows up and his wife immediately knows what's going on. She knew from the get-go what was going on, that, that this woman is here, his mistress is there. And he says, well, I haven't seen her in years. I don't know what you're talking about. And again, because of how Mastriani is playing the role, you're like, God, He's a manipulator and a gaslighter, but he makes it seem so genuine. And that is a real feat of acting because it's one thing to be a gaslighter, but he makes it look like it does come from this place of truth. The thing that I love the most about Marcello's acting style is the way that he pulls off a man to be pitied. Bring up <laughs> yesterday, today, and tomorrow again, but especially in the vignette in which Sophia Loren just has child after child after child to avoid going to jail. By the end, he's surrounded by 12 kids and you can just see the terror and the pain in his face make this all end. He can say all of that with one expression and he does that in this movie too. You give him sympathy for any reason. 
just because he's so good at looking like a sad puppy. This is probably my first introduction to him with really realizing how big of a star he actually was. What is so deft about this entire thing is the fact comparing modern depictions of unlikable people and unlikable dudes is they kind of almost take it too far nowadays. You're going into this not having any affection for the character whatsoever. But the entire time you are watching this, you're like, oh, no, he's really quite appealing. He really seems to know what he's talking about. It's not just women who are fawning over him. It's also the producer of the movie who's just like, blank check, man. Just tell me whatever you want. I don't even have a script yet. You can totally do whatever. And everyone is buying into this man's mythos. You're along for the ride, even though you can tell that he's doing all these things that are generally frowned upon in Catholic 1960s Italy and also now of just being like, he does have a mistress who he's pulling in that he's doing role-playing with that you know he would never do with his wife. He harkens back to his sexual awakening. Forgot the character's name where she's dancing sexily. For oh, Sarah Gina. Sarah The Gina. sex worker, yeah. Yeah. He's still remembering that in a way that most of us would not be powerful with now or then. But you're on it the entire time. You never expect him to be held, any of it to be held against him. You never actually expect there to be a consequence for him. Whereas now you go into movies where there's unlikable characters and it's almost a morality play where it's like, when is he going to get his comeuppance at the end? And that doesn't, at least I didn't feel like he was ever going to be held accountable for the things that he was doing. Yeah, more than anything, I was just rooting for him to better himself as a person and to finish the movie. I thought that that was what was going to happen. Spoiler alert. That's ultimately what did happen, and it's great. I love that self-improvement. Can I just say one, not to keep bringing up Nine, but that's many people's entry into this. Can we talk about the fact that Sarah Gina in the film Eight and a Half, played by Edra Gale, is definitely the prototypical depiction of an Italian woman. She's very curvaceous. She's got the big hair. I love it. I love her look. I love her confidence. In the film version, they get Fergie, who's hot and buxom <laughs> and very thin. She can sing the hell out of the song that they give her, but I was like, oh, that's American filmmaking for you right there that, yeah, we definitely got to make her voluptuous, but thin. Make sure that she's still hot. That's my rant. No, you're totally on to something, Emily, in terms of how people look at him there really is this serious critique of Hollywood, or at least the filmmaking industry, not necessarily the films. Day for Night, it's really about looking at the joy of filmmaking and the camaraderie. This is the complete opposite. This is the emotional turmoil that comes from creativity. The fact that Guido starts this whole movie in a spa because he's had some sort of breakdown, he's drying out. His mental health is not in a good place, but it's 1963. Nobody really cares about mental health. We're not talking about it in the same way we are now. The fact that all of these producers are asking him to put friends of theirs, specifically women, everybody has a mistress. Every man in this movie has a mistress that they have shown up with who they want in this movie. He's really looking at the culture. This is tolerated. This is allowed. And at the same time, what I notice is how often women tell him they don't like his movies or they're critical about his films. The one sequence where the guy is showing his quote-unquote nieces, which is two hot girls in bed together, for reasons. They say, aren't you going to make a love story? We don't think you can do that. I don't know if that's because so much of this movie, you question what is being told to him directly and what are his own inner thoughts about things. But I did love that 
most of the women in this movie don't really care for him as a filmmaker, which goes back to this concept of male filmmakers and really Fellini himself making this movie really do ascribe to the fact that they are auteurs. They are masters of filmmaking. All of the women are just like, yeah, your movies are fine. They're okay. Women just don't get it. Well, that would be the question. (laughs) That would be the question. Do we think Fellini is saying women just don't get the process? Or are we saying that he is self-angredizing himself? Is he taking the piss, essentially? That's what I'm very interested in. Are we supposed to assume that he's saying women don't get it? Or is that the joke? I don't know if I can say anymore, because in the 60 years that have happened between this movie coming out and me watching it, this movie has been the germination of so many auteur men being like, I am genius. People, especially women or people of color, do not get me and my genius. And it's their fault that I don't know if I can watch this movie without those lenses on anymore. I'm watching this of watching literally decades and generations of filmmakers be like, I'm going to make my eight and a half about how brilliant I am and why I shouldn't be making more money. So I don't know. I really don't know. I would assume Fellini had slightly more of a sense of humor, just knowing Italian people, but I think it's gone. I don't know. I would love to get Fellini's zombie corpse on this podcast. He's all, they've been misinterpreting this for decades. I was totally joking and they've proven my point. I would love that. If there are any psychics out there that can contact Fellini from beyond, I would love to know his thoughts. We'll summon him and ask him a few questions. We have a bone to pick. Chicklish biz seance circle. I'm ready for this. I just wanted to give a little more context too to what Emily was saying. When I was reading through the trivia for this film, I saw that it was David Lynch's favorite film and Martin Scorsese's favorite film, apparently. It basically did just birth a generation of white male directors that think that they're the greatest. (laughs) I'm not sure your educational backgrounds, but if you go to film school, every single guy who goes to film school wants to be a director. None of them are there to be like, I'm going to be a cinematographer. I'm going to be an editor. I'm going to be a writer. Every single dude who goes to film school, love you, Emerson College, but every single dude who goes to film school wants to be a director because they want to make a movie like this. I've been out of college for 20 years now. I am exhausted. (laughs) I had actual apprehension about watching this because it's a hugely famous movie. I really, really want to see it. I'm so excited to talk about it with you guys. But I'm also just like, oh God, I'm tired of these dudes. (laughs) It definitely revels in the abstract. And now it's become almost a contest in the decades that have followed to become more and more and more abstract to make the point that you're trying to make in your film, it's just confusing all of us. Just that famous shot of Marcello Mastriani going through the area and seeing Barbara Steele's character, and he does the thing with the glasses. He pulls them down his neck. You could Google a million other directors and other filmmakers emulating that very shot. It's iconic. It's on the Wikipedia page. It's the only shot you need to see from this movie. Where I was, I don't want to say bored because, oh, that's going to get me trolled. But where this movie came alive for me the most is with the women. That is something that I also noticed with La Dolce Vita. That poster does not have the male character on it. It's the actress whose name escapes me in the Trevi Fountain. That is iconic. The fact that there are so many in their own right famous 
Italian actresses in this film who all do really great work is a real testament to the fact that I think this movie, no disrespect to Marcello, only works because of how well cast the women are. Sandra Milo, I think, is really great as Carla. She is this trashy, low rent. There's a big class distinction that is supposed to be presented here. She is considered gauche. She dresses very flamboyantly. She wears a lot of heavy makeup. She has a husband that is supposedly very nice, treats her well, but he's just boring. That was really fascinating that we don't see a lot of women in this world that are flagrantly cheating on their husbands, except for Carla. It's really more to get a leg up, financially speaking, and better her life, possibly her husband's life. We don't really know his complicity in this relationship. He might be okay with it. I did not realize Barbara Steele, famous horror queen, Barbara Steele was in this movie. You can tell right away she looks like Lydia Dietz with the black hair. She's very Ophelia-like, which irked me. She's this flowery prototype to a hippie in the 1960s. She's very distinctive. Anukami as Louisa is really great. She is the only one with a conscience for the majority of the movie. But that harem sequence, there's a moment in the film where Guido is having this, as Samantha said up top, a fever dream that his ideal world is where he lives in a house with all of his women. And when they turn 30, they all go upstairs to live a life. I'm trying to find the quote because I wrote it down. She'll be treated very well and bask in her memories. That was hilarious because that is what a guy would say, right? After 30, you're dead. But don't worry, I'm going to take care of you and you will have the memory of when you were young and hot and you were also dating me. The sequence eventually turns into all of these women critiquing him and saying that he's bad in bed, that he's a horrible person, he can't handle it. That was really the heart of this movie. I really appreciated that because whether it's true or not, it is a bit of awareness from Fellini that I might be a dick. I might actually be a horrible person. That's true. That does suggest that there could be that additional layer there that we're hopefully looking for. I bring up when Luisa tells him off after he shows her the movie. I love that scene so much. To point out more amazing women, Madeline LeBeau is in this, you guys, from Casablanca. How cool is that? Yep. I love that. That made me so happy. As you say, Anuka Me and Madeline LeBeau, between the two of them, it's the French women that carry this Italian film. But... I just have to shout out Claudia Cardinale too, because I adore her. She's going in my book that I'm writing right now. She, to me, embodies, other than Sophia Loren, of course, Italian 60s cinema. Have you joined Tickler's Business Patreon? You should, just like Abby Moore, Amy Hart, Andrew Hopp, Christine Meyer, Danny, David Floyd, Donna Hill, Jacob Haller, McF, and Melanie. Listen to episodes 48 hours early, receive exclusive membership items, and even guests on an episode. You also get access to bonus series like Based on a True Podcast, Doubled Features, and special limited series like Being Elvis and Six Weeks with the Thin Man. It's all patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. Back to the show. It was just such perfect casting to put her in this film as the ideal Italian actress. She's literally the embodiment of his... All of these things that he's saying that are derogatory towards women, he's like, oh, but... Claudia over here is none of that. She's perfect. She's great. But she's also in my head. She's and the ideal Claudia woman. Claudia playing her. 
as this perfect Italian ideal woman is just fantastic. I couldn't love her more. I would also recommend for people who are looking for more of her movies to watch A Fine Pair with Rock Hudson, where they play jewel thieves. It is great. Speaking of Italian women, I just saw Rock Hudson and Gina Lollobrigida in Come September, which is darling. Yes. That movie is so darling. So I am all for watching more of Rock teaming up with foreign Italian actresses because that seemed to be where he thrived. Hot take, I, I like it more than the day Hudson films. I will say that A Fine Pair, I believe, was 69, so definitely late, late 60s. It's starting to get a little experimental. It's starting to get a little weird. So it's not like your Academy Award-nominated piece. It's so fun to watch. It's so cute. They're both so beautiful, and watching them play Jewel Thieves in the Swiss Alps is crazy. Future themes. The Rock Hudson movies that started to get weird, because there are more than one. (laughs) they're all worth discussing in some regard. Or if you want a Claudia Cardinale weird double feature, follow eight and a half up with it. <laughs> I pointed out that this movie is weird because I don't know if I was expecting quite the level of surrealism that happened. I was really going into this blind. I will admit the sound on my television has been really fritzy lately. So the first three minutes I was like, are the speakers hooked up? Like, What's happening? Did the cats mess up the wiring? And it's perfectly silent for the first three minutes until she starts floating into the clouds and choking to death in his car. And you're just like, okay, I was not expecting surrealism off the bat. But at the same time, my brain had to remember that this is post-war Italy and they are dealing with a lot of stuff. This was also during the heyday of uh, Salvador Dali making movies. And so I was just kind of like, right, right. They do this. Okay. Refocus, reacquaint myself with how this movie is going to go. Right. And you point out a good thing that it is post-World War II. Again, I don't know much about the gender distinctions at this time in the country, but I did notice that compared to some of the other post-war films, even some of the Sophia Loren films from the later 60s, as we start to get into color, I noticed that in later Italian films, like the emphasis on ruins was still present. You were still seeing that this country was still in the midst of rebuilding even a decade later from the war. And you don't get any indication of the war in this movie. This is a very clean, shiny, we're in the upper echelons of wealth. This is clearly a spa that people with money can afford. There is no indication of a war. I don't really know how I took that. It was hard not to notice. But the first couple of minutes where it is fully silent, one of the first things they talk about is that this is another movie with no hope. And that really is telling from a post-war perspective, where in America, at least, post-World War II films were very hopeful. I mean, yes, you've got the noir towards the end of the 1940s, But by 46, 47, you were very much getting what we would see in the 1950s, which is happy domestic dramas. We've moved on. Whereas the Italians, hard not to feel that there is a leftover remnant of, that's all great that you guys can ignore what happened, but we were the ones being bombed. We cannot ignore that. So all of the things we are making, all of the art we are creating is tinged with that sense of what purpose are we serving? And there is a bit of what we would now call meta humor to this. One of the producers is talking to him. I think it's the film critic that he has looking at the script where he's like, this is a film that lacks conflict or a philosophical premise. The author doesn't know what the point is. 
all of that is true if you're watching the movie because you're really unclear if they know what the point of this movie is. We're talking about trying to conjure up Bellini himself to answer questions because we don't know what the point is. The fact that somebody else is pointing that out, it does almost jab American cinema, which was very formulaic as much as that formula worked for so long. They always had conflict. They always had intent. Bellini, I think, is saying, I might be putting words in Fellini's dead mouth, but it's almost like he's saying, you guys have that ability to do that because you are not affected by the war in the same way that we were. It's interesting, too, the point in history when this was made. On one hand, these escapist kind of films weren't going to work on audiences for much longer because of this looming counterculture movement that the late 60s was going to bring. Just as we talk a lot about how one of your classic pre-codes, like the story of Temple Drake, as we were just discussing, couldn't have been made even three years later. A lot could be said about this movie, too. I don't know how well the very stern, serious, counterculture, Vietnam War young generation would have taken a movie like Eight and a Half. I don't know if they would have received it as well. Yeah, I don't know if this had the revival we see like in the 1970s, 1980s, is the what we now know as the film brat generation, people that went to film school, or people that a lot of the 70s directors, I could be talking out of my hat here. But I know that this was often wanted in the 1970s as this prototype of what 70s filmmaking should be very dreamlike, very experimental. There's a whole section in this film where he's talking about Catholicism. And it is a very religious movie. I don't think that that should be ignored, is that a lot of Guido's past trips into his mind is looking at his relationship with his father. He clearly has daddy issues, his relationship with his mother, his relationship with the Catholic Church. And that is, to be Italian and Catholic is a huge thing. It still is. I don't have the numbers on that, but certainly got to be better than Catholicism in America. That's a huge element of his thought process is he's getting older. If he's not unified and bound with the church, what does that mean for his soul, his life? And it is a very deep for a film that kind of makes fun of like, it doesn't have a philosophical intent. Eight and a Half is very much a philosophical movie. I don't think that can be denied. I looked it up. 96% of Italy is baptized Catholic. It's there. What's really weird though, is I was Googling while you're talking. I needed to know for context, Catholicism was still also the declared religion of fascist Italy. So while you've got Mussolini who's palling around with people like Stalin who are like, there's no state religion, you have Mussolini going, yeah, we're going to be totalitarian, but also still Catholic. Must be a really weird thing to live through of just you have a totalitarian leader who demands pure and total subjugation of the people who are living there. But also, you are declaring allegiance to the Pope because he's still the head of the Catholic Church. Your identity must get really, really fractured living in that kind of environment. I also know that Italy post-war was, like Germany, completely destitute. They had no money. Everybody was starving. You also have this film that's only taking place 15, 20 years after the end of World War II, and you're showing people who are incredibly rich. I don't know the purpose of doing that. They're talking about the millions of dollars they've spent, or lira, in order to build a concrete footing 
for the spaceship, the set that they're building. And it's just millions and millions and millions of lira. And you're just like, wow, that could feed the country for a really long time. That's galling, actually. Is this where the filmmaking wealth divide started? Because we also have the start of paparazzi in the 60s with Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor. Elizabeth was flashing her wealth and her jewels in the 60s and getting photographed. It was put on a magazine the next day, and that had never been done before. It's a weird piggyback thought, but when you think of something like that and you think about social media now, the way that people flash their wealth, especially in Hollywood and in the movie making industry, look how much money it costs for me to live like this, for me to do this through making movies and how poor everyone is right now something to think about. Wish I had Fellini here to explain the concept, but you are so right, Samantha. This comes out the same year as Cleopatra, which Cleopatra had been in development for a long time, but it would finally come out to theaters in 1963. I do wonder if Fellini is making a joke about the excess of filmmaking as a medium that they can spend all this money. Meanwhile, people are starving. And it's a really direct slap in the face to what we saw in the Depression. The concept of, oh, for 10 cents, you can see a baby smile, you can see Shirley Temple, and you can feel better about yourself. Fellini's saying, yeah, but you know how much that movie made could also feed an entire country. What is the point? To watch this and to know that the most ultra example of American, well, I would say filmmaking excess, just of any country at the time, what Cleopatra was also coming out only strengthens that point. Go back to Emily's point about Catholicism really briefly. We, I don't want to say make fun of it, but we do treat it very lightly. Spencer Tracy was rumored to have not gotten a divorce from his wife because he was Catholic. There's a lot of debate on whether that is true or whether that was an excuse. Regardless, we don't really buy into that as a nation. But in Italy, that was a huge thing. Marcello Mastriani was married for a significant amount of time. One of his longest running relationships was with Faye Dunaway. She wanted to get married. She wanted to have children with him. He refused to divorce his wife because they were Catholic. It wasn't until several decades after that she agreed to a divorce and they did divorce and he was with somebody else. But for Italy, that is a huge thing. And it is commented on in this film is these people all had mistresses, but they're connection to their religion is so strong that they do sublimate a lot of their own personal desires and end up hurting more people as a means of making sure that they're staying good with their religion. And on top of that, just two years before this was made, Marcello made Divorce Italian Style, in which the literal plot of the movie is, it is so frowned upon that I divorced my wife to marry someone else that it is more acceptable for me to kill her instead. It may not have actually been legal in Italy at the time that these movies were made. I was trying to look up exactly when divorce was even legalized in Italy, and it may not have been until the 1970s. When they're Just talking morally about- morally like, too, how crazy exactly. that is. That exactly. in the movie, it's more socially acceptable for him to kill his wife than to divorce his wife. That says a lot about the kind of climate that we're working with here in the scope of this movie. One of the things that really actually kind of boggled my mind is we're talking about epic filmmaking, how expensive Cleopatra was, and you have the history of the historical epic in, in filmmaking up until this point. And I thought it was really interesting that in this movie, 
the movie behind the scenes that they're trying to get off the ground is a science fiction epic, which is not something I would ever equate with Italian movies at all. But apparently they do make a lot of jet engines. Apparently Italian engineering is really big on jet engines. That's an aside. But I was like, oh my gosh, it's really fascinating to me that they're making an old-fashioned starship movie. And then on the complete flip side of the movie that's made in the context of that is something that is so insular, it literally takes place in one man's bed. We have this film that they're supposed to be making that we're escaping the planet because of nuclear war. And then it's like, actually, it only revolves around who this one guy is sleeping with. The movie transitions, because that's what I was confused by, is that I was like, I know they're making a sci-fi film, But then at a certain point, there is that extended sequence of him doing a screen test with women playing Carla and his wife, and they're re-encountering scenes. I was a little struck by that because I was like, wait, what has just happened? Did the plot of the movie change? Did the plot of the movie he is making change? I was very confused by that. Not to keep throwing Day for Night in there, but there's a scene in Day for Night where Truffaut's character hears a very sad story by his leading lady, played by Jacqueline Bissett. And he takes that and inserts it into the film. She's very upset by it because he's using her personal life for story elements. I wonder if that is a callback to Fellini doing that here, only on a subtler scale. It does add these layers of meta context to everything because Louisa is watching all of this happen and she knows exactly what he's doing. But it does make you wonder if At some point, Guido has just thrown out the sci-fi element and decided to make some sort of drama. I like to think of this almost like the big sleep where it's just a bunch of different plots and pieces stitched together. And you're not even really supposed to understand it from beginning to end. You're just kind of supposed to accept it for what it is. That's this movie also. And again, maybe that is part of the inspirational elements that this is hearkening back to that film noir world where stories didn't necessarily have to make sense. You just take everything on faith and just hope that you understand what goes on after a while. The movie ends with a very surrealist ending of everybody dancing at a festival. It's very happy. Italian Uh, wedding dance. An Italian wedding dance. But the original ending was Guido and Louisa on a train entering a tunnel, which the co-screenwriter thought was indicative of suicide. And so they went with a more hopeful ending. We talked about this up top. Do we think that Guido gets comeuppance? At the end of this film, I definitely think that he's more content with the fantasy elements. That ending is very surrealist, very shiny and happy and peppy. And I do think that he has clearly made this decision that he wants to live in the fantasy. You're not going to change him. And I don't necessarily know if the original ending would have felt earned, for him to just go off into uncertainty. Guido is a character that does not like uncertainty. He very much likes control or at least happiness and shininess and the good stuff, right? I don't think we would have had that ending work out if we had gone with the original. But I don't really think that he learns anything at the end of this movie. I think that he just admits that he is happy with the fantasy of his life and is willing to stay that way. I still disagree. As I kind of touched on before, I still think that the ending... Everybody comes at different movies taking from it maybe what you want to learn sometimes. This one, he definitely just seemed so self-reliant and so self-assured throughout the whole film. Finally, the people in his life 
almost give him an intervention and tell him this isn't how you should be living your life. And this isn't how you should be making your films. And then he realizes, oh, wait, I need people. I need my wife. I need everybody involved in this film's production. The holding of hands at the end is a physical symbol of I am joining all of you and realizing that this is a collaborative effort and that I need all of you to make this movie and to keep me sane. Emily, where do you fall? At the end, Louisa joins him in the understanding that he is not going to change. That's what the symbolism is. Throughout the entire thing, he has a wife who is estranged from him. And at the end, she joins him in the collective circle. But I think a lot of that is her no longer removing herself from the relationship of Guido, but understanding that if she wants to still be married to him, she has to understand that his entire life is going to be separate from her with other women answering to producers and things like that. I don't know if it's not hopeful because I think that they are certainly happy at the end. But I think for me, my reading of it was understanding that Louisa is no longer going to be the thorn in his side and punish him for his behaviors. He gets the wifey on board with the life that she signed up for originally, didn't she know? And that's more because I don't think Guido or Fellini feel like they have anything to apologize for from the way that Guido is behaving. He's just like, this is me. And the strife comes from the fact that my wife doesn't understand. And at the end, she understands that this is the life she signed up for, not that I should have to change. At the end of the day, I appreciated this more than I probably did when I was a teenager watching it. And I do want to watch Little Chivita again now because I do remember liking that a bit more. But I don't know, gang. I don't know if I'm a Fellini girl. I definitely want to watch more. I need to see La Dolce Vita. I love Marcello. He's just the gem of this movie and Claudia too. But there are just things that I don't understand about it. And it's a little too abstract for my personal taste. I could definitely see myself going back to it someday and trying to learn more and more as you watch over and over. I'm not sure if that's going to be anytime soon though. I wish I'd gotten to see this movie at the age I am now, but 30 years ago. You know what I mean? Before other people took their inspiration that they got from watching Eight and a Half and diluted what the movie could mean for me. I've just seen so many better term is not coming to my mind. So I'm just going to say ripoffs of it that just doesn't have the oomph that I think it could have if I hadn't seen all of the derived movies. I just want to mention that that's how I feel about The Shining, and I call that The Shining Effect. Listeners, you can let us know your thoughts on Eight and a Half, Fellini, what Fellini's ghost would tell us. You can contact us through social media. We're on Twitter and Instagram at TicklishBiz. You can also find us on Facebook, as well as our email, which is ticklishbiz at gmail.com. We have an update to our ticklish biz mystery that we talked about on the last episode if you listen to the last episode we were trying to help hannah from australia she wanted us to figure out a movie where she said there was a scene with chorus girls dressed like strawberries and chocolates dancing around a milkshake in the 1940s or 1950s i put this out on all of the classic film communities that i knew of and we have an answer hannah has not told us if this is the right answer but we are hoping it is right The consensus was, this is from the 1934 Eddie Cantor movie, Kid Millions. 
there is a clip out there that I do believe is what she's thinking of. So Hannah, if you're listening, let us know if we are on the right track or if this is something completely different. We have a new review out that was sent to us on Apple Podcasts from DC92264, who said that they look forward to every new episode of our show. Keep up the great work. Thank you so much. And I did get a Patreon comment that I wanted to read to Samantha because it was for her. This comes to us from Melanie, longtime patron Melanie, who says, Samantha, I don't know if you ever read the comments on Patreon, but I just wanted to let you know, I thought you did a great job moderating the Temple Drake episode. Top notch ep. That is so sweet. Thank you. I am like a nerd for pre-code, so I don't know if it would have gone as well if I wasn't discussing a pre-code. Well, I am glad that you and Emily were able to do that episode in my absence. You guys are awesome. So, And just the fact that it's one of those movies based on a book and Emily knew everything about the author. That definitely helps me. <laughs> that closes out Tickwish Business for today. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get podcasts. As you heard, reviews matter, so leave us one on Apple Podcasts. No less than five stars, please. We are on all social media platforms, as I already mentioned, but you can follow me personally over at therap.com, where all my writing is, and I am on Twitter and Instagram at KristenLopez88. Samantha Ellis, where are you on the interwebs? You can mostly find me on Twitter at Classic Film Geek. You can find my blog at musingsofaclassicfilmatic.com. And you can find my Cooking with the Stars posts over at classicmoviehub.com. Emily Edwards, what about you? I am across all social medias at MsEmilyEdwards.com. You can also sign up for my writer newsletter at MsEmilyEdwards.com slash newsletter. Those go out twice a month. Our Patreon helps keep the lights on at Ticklish Biz HQ and gives us chances to do new content like the episode all about the Errol Flynn biopic, The Last of Robin Hood, because an Errol Flynn biopic is not going to be weird and disturbing at all. Consider helping us out at patreon.com slash biz. And of course, my book, but have you read the book, is out now. You can order it wherever you buy books. If you are interested in a signed copy, get in touch with me and I can make it happen. We will return on July 19th with a new episode and a special guest. Till then. 